Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stanmore Major and in this episode we're continuing Alain Collard's Around the World Alone and we're on chapter 4. Chapter 4, A Sea of Troubles, continued. Saturday, November 24th. I'm feeling a bit better, though I'm still far from well. The winds have now shifted to the south. I let out the reefs and, an hour later, ran up the jib. The sea is calm and is beginning to look inhabited. Freighters, cruisers and hundreds of dark-coloured birds. I'm at the end of my week. From meridian point to meridian point, I've covered 1,299 nautical miles. My total is 14,079 miles since leaving San Marlo for a daily average of 182.8 miles. Not bad, but I'm not there yet. Sunday, November 25th. It's very depressing to be becalmed when I'm so close to my goal. I tried to get underway at 0600 and then went back to bed. I still do not feel well. By noon, I can no longer see the Hogan Islands or the Wilson Promontory. I think that we've now passed through the Bass Strait and that we're back in the Tasman Sea and the immensities of the Pacific. I sighted two offshore drilling platforms and came quite close to both. There were a number of men on the platforms, but no one waved. Later, I encountered a mass of lumber lashed together and populated by a colony of seals. At that point, the water was too deep for me to get a reading. The barometer is falling, and the setting sun is an orange ball surrounded by a pale halo. I see lightning to port. I seem to have regained my appetite, and I've fixed myself a large helping of rye, or oignon, the speciality of the house. I have a feeling of nostalgia as I draw nearer to Sydney. The city has played an important part in my life. It was there that I became involved with the sea. Pensive, and perhaps a bit melancholy in the evocation of those not-too-distant years, I've been sitting in the cockpit for a long while, thinking about the various stages by which the young French student who got off the ship at Sydney was transformed into the seaman who is now on a solo cruise around the world. Clamoncy, Dijon, Paris, Sydney, all stops on my first trip around the world of youthful uncertainties until, unsuspecting, I found the road that eventually led to my greatest adventure. I'd gone to Sydney in search of the sun and I found the sea instead. That may sound dramatic, but it is not quite true. The truth is that I've always loved the water. At home in Clamancy, we had the Yon River, which I learned to swim at a very early age, and where I learned to handle a small sailboat, a pleasure that eventually became a necessity. Later, studying English as a student in Paris, after a brief stopover in Dijon, I found a security blanket at Bullier, the student swimming pool. Then I discovered boat racing, with my friends in Clamancy, we started a racing club. One of the good things about being a student is that you have a lot of free time. At the end of the school year, I was able to devote the summer months to my new passion. I was completely absorbed in it and was busy raising money, renting a workshop, building boats, recruiting members for the club, all of it in preparation for what was to come. It was not that I did not enjoy Paris and my studies. I did indeed. I loved my work there and I loved the intellectual gymnastics involved in working with words. It has always seemed to me that to take words from one language and render them in another language is a creative act. I had chosen English as my field of study because of a natural inclination toward that language and also because it was the field in which, until then, I had shown the most ability. Even so, I felt the need for something more. 
At first, I thought that it was only a matter of my missing something, something physical, the sun, the open air, the freedom of the outdoors. I was not the only student at the Sorbonne studying English, and the classrooms were so crowded that sometimes I had to follow a lecture as best I could while standing in the hallway. There were simply too many people for me to be comfortable. A fine situation for a young man who had come to Paris in search of an education. Paradoxically, I also suffered from solitude. I was to spend months alone on the sea in later life. As a student, however, I could never mingle with the crowds on the Boulevard Saint-Michel or join the mobs on the Paris subway without feeling the most intense isolation, as though I were a lost child. It is a feeling familiar to anyone who chooses to live in solitude for a period of time in order to find himself, by recognizing his despondence on other people and thus becoming closer to them. It was in Paris, in the midst of a crowd, that I lost contact with other human beings. There were times when I remained in my room for days at a time, making my meals from a supply of groceries that I had laid in to last for a week. One morning, the whole thing was brought to a head by the sun, or rather by the fact that I could not see the sun because of the apartment buildings outside my window. I suddenly realized that if I lived in a city, I would never have the pleasure of looking up at the sky. And if I did not look up, the chances were that I would see nothing more than a grey dome overhead. It was not enough to be able to swim in a pool or to shoot down the streams of central France whenever I managed to get away. The dream of a trip around the world began to germinate in Paris, and there were three of us who shared that dream. I had left the University of Dijon with two friends, who also wanted to study in Paris. I don't know which of us first had the idea of the bread truck, as we called it, the kind of van that has since become so popular among young people. The bread truck was going to be our means of transportation on our travels along the highways of the planet. We were entirely serious about the plan. We attended all the explorers' lectures at the Salle Playel in Paris, and whenever we saw a van on the street, usually a Volkswagen or a Land Rover, we stopped to examine it at length, often getting down on our knees to examine the suspension system. I was already at work with my maps, tracing our first itinerary. I'm not sure what had inspired us. Perhaps it was nothing more than the subconscious desire of three young men to prolong our schoolboy days as long as possible before facing real life, or it may have been a vague perception of the call of the open sea. I did not come from a seafaring family, and I do not think that there was any longing for the sea at that time. I think that the sun itself was enough to give me the ideas of journeys to distant lands. The first job, obviously, was to put my family in the proper frame of mind, to listen to my plans for travel. That is not easy in a closely knit family, which takes a very dim view of long separations, and my friends and I planned to be away at least two years. I began, deviously enough, on a rather oblique psychological track, I suggested that my English studies would be helped enormously if I travelled to English-speaking countries. It was in this context that Australia was first mentioned, since it is an English-speaking country and since it is, conveniently, located at the other end of the world. A dream is like a fragile vase. If you discuss it and handle it too much, it is likely to be destroyed. We discussed, delayed, discussed some more, and then the workday world intervened. My friends had problems with their studies and then they had to worry about their military service. So, I was left alone with the dream. Far from being discouraged, I was absolutely certain that I would die if I had to remain in France. 
At the beginning of this book, I mentioned how my father had taught me never to give up and how, thanks to him, I had learned that dreams have a way of being translated into reality. It was a happy coincidence, therefore, that it was my father who clipped an advertisement in English from Le Monde and sent it to me. The ad described a position that was available in the Faculty of Letters in Sydney, Australia, a proposition as lecturer. In my innocence, I thought that a lecturer was a teaching assistant, a position for which I might hope to qualify. This seemed the perfect opportunity to get to Australia and at the same time to perfect my knowledge of English. I could not pass it up. I sent out my application immediately and then settled down to wait. I heard nothing. I then decided not to wait any longer. I would go to Australia and apply in person. Therefore, I booked passage on a ship sailing from Marseille on December 26th. A few days before that date, I received a letter from Australia declining my services as a lecturer. But it was too late. I had decided to take my chances. The day after Christmas, my family put me aboard a freighter that, after a series of ports of calls via Suez and the East Indies, would eventually reach Australia. Not being altogether irresponsible, I took advantage of every port of call along the way to dispatch an avalanche of letters to colleges, institutes and universities in Australia, offering my services. I also, in conspiracy with English-speaking friends, concocted an irresistible letter to the head of the French department at the University of Sydney, explaining that, while I understood that the position for which I had applied might already be filled, I hoped to be allowed to call on him when I arrived in Australia for a session of job counselling. I also had an ace in the hole. Boats. I had received a teaching certificate from the National Institute of Sports, and I hoped to be able to get a job as an instructor. I had letters of commendation attesting to my skill in paddle racing, for I hoped, whatever happened, to be able to continue to enjoy my favourite sport. Nor had I forgotten my diving tanks, a tent, or anything that I might need to snare a few fish along the coast, provided that my welcome in Australia was at least moderately warm. Of course, I could not travel without my books and technical dictionaries, just in case I wrangled a few translations, or without a skillet and a stew pan being a Frenchman, all told, my baggage weighed at least 600 or 700 pounds. When we arrived in Sydney, I was a bit uneasy about leaving the ship. I had been fascinated by everything aboard and I had been more or less adopted by the crew. My fears were groundless. From the moment I set foot ashore, I met with nothing but warmth and friendliness. A customs officer tapped me on the shoulder, welcomed me to his country and offered to take charge of my luggage so that, while I was calling at the university, I would not have to pay for storage. I immediately visited the university and called on the head of the French department. The interview went very well indeed. We understood each other, as people sometimes do from the very first moment. But more than that, I had an advantage over other applicants for the job who had written from France. I was neither a photograph nor a resume, but flesh and blood sitting in the chairman's office and answering his questions directly. Also, I represented an economy. I was already in Australia, and the university would have to pay the travel expenses of any other French applicant who might be hired. Therefore, I got the job. I still did not know that a lecturer was a full-fledged teacher. I thought that I was going to be an assistant. In fact, I did not discover that there had been a misunderstanding until I was issued a small yellow button which, it was explained to me, was given only to lecturers and which allowed that privileged rank 
access to virtually every part of the university. My suspicion that something had gone wrong somewhere was confirmed when, shortly thereafter, the nature of my duties was explained to me in detail. The gods, obviously, had decided to give me my big chance. The university, in opening its doors to me, offered me an opportunity that had nothing to do with my duties as a teacher. For the first time in my life, I was going to live on the seashore. And what a shore it was. Sydney is an astonishing city with countless inlets from a bay which would be difficult to describe without multiplying objectives and adverbs unduly. Suffice it to say that I had constantly before my eyes an incredible spectacle of sailing vessels in constant motion. Sailing was the pastime and the passion of a people fascinated by water sports. For me, at first, before I knew sailing, the boats were a seascape rather than a passion. For the moment, I was content to watch the colourful sails as they weaved their way majestically through the ferry boats and the commercial vessels, a kaleidoscopic vision which was, in itself, an invitation to faraway places. The Sydney Canoe Club was a half-day's journey from the campus, and for that reason, I did not go as often as I would have liked. One day, however, some of my faculty colleagues asked me to join them for a sail. One of their crew was unable to get away, and they needed a replacement in the race. I accepted, and for the first time, I set foot on a sailing vessel. That was in 1966. I was 22 years old at the time, and on that day, sailing struck me like a thunderbolt. I knew at once that sailing was not only an interesting and an exciting sport, but also a mysterious society of initiates with its own language to protect it from the profane, a language that had an evocative power fortified by the magic of actions born of words. It was also a marvellous way of handling time and space. I understood immediately that if I could learn to handle this boat, which at that moment was cutting proudly through the waves of the Bay of Sydney, I would be able one day to take a boat to those same faraway lands that had been the object of my dreams as a student in a Parisian garret. By learning to sail, I would learn not only the rules and the discipline of another sport, but I would also make it possible to transform my dreams into reality. The old dream of a trip around the world with my two friends would be realised, not in a bread truck, but on a sleek sailboat that would allow me to push back ever farther the line of the horizon. My excitement on that first sail was irrepressible. Every time I saw a boat on the bay, I asked my friends how much it cost. Then I quickly computed how many hours I would have to spend tutoring and how many translations I would have to do in order to buy it. My tour of the world had started its siren song, this time with a vengeance. That evening, as soon as I got back to the campus, even before going home, I visited the library and took out every book on sailing and sailboats that I could find. Then, first sitting next to the open window in the room, enjoying the night air, and later stretched out on my bed till dawn, I underwent my preliminary literary initiation into the language and techniques of yachting. It was the first time, but hardly the last, that sailing made me spend a sleepless night. I was supposed to sail again with my friends the following Sunday, in a race, no less, and I felt I owed it to myself and to them to know as much as I could. And although I began by being astonished that sailors were not allowed to refer to rope as a rope, I was soon able to talk about lines and halyards, to say nothing of sheets and jibs with the best of them. Canoe racing had undoubtedly predisposed me to the spirit of competition, for within a few days I had learned enough to become a useful member of the crew. 
In racing, you learn in a few outings what pleasure sailing takes years to teach. Racing requires unwavering attention so that when you are already going fast, you can go even faster. It demands that at the very moment that you think you've found the ideal trim, you start adjusting the sails again. It requires endless repetition until every movement, every series of maneuvers practiced against a stopwatch is perfect. Everything that I learned in Australia was put to the test later elsewhere. But then, Australians sail year-round. For every 10 races held in France during a season, there are at least 50 in Australia. In fact, during my first year in the country, there was a minor uprising of skippers' wives demanding that there be at least one Sunday a month without a race, so that their husbands could do things around the house. I spent four seasons, that is, two years, since there is a winter championship as well as a summer championship, learning the secrets of sailing. I soon became impatient with regattas, that is, races around triangular courses marked by boys, and felt the urge to strike out on the open sea. I was able to sign onto ocean-going yachts, and there I felt at home. The old dream of going around the world to see places and to learn about people continued to haunt me. I applied myself to learning the techniques of sailing on the open sea with the idea that I was practicing for an adventure that lay in the future. But I knew that I had to go beyond mere learning. I found a place among the crew on a racing boat by answering an ad. I explained that I was French and that, in addition to being an able-bodied seaman, I could also cook. The prestige of French cuisine serves many unexpected ends. This detail was later taken up by newspapers for lack of more substantial news and transformed into an amusing anecdote. Thus, when Eric Tabley came to Australia with his Panduic 3 to take part in the famous Sydney Hobart race, I became known as the other Frenchman in the race. I was a bona fide member of the crew of one of the yachts registered for that great classic, and that, for me, was a definite step up in my career on the sea, for to be a crewman was an eagerly sought prize and a prestigious one. The morning of the race, there were about 60 young men wandering along the dock, their packs slung over their shoulders, waiting and hoping that, at the last moment, some crew member would not show up and would have to be replaced. The Sydney Hobart in Australia overshadows even the Davis Cup, and that in a country where tennis is taken very seriously indeed. It was on this occasion that I first met my famous compatriot, Eric Tabley. After the race, part of Eric's crew returned to France, and since there was a place aboard Panduic 3, I signed on. As it turned out, that simple decision marked a turning point in my life. There were five of us aboard on that memorable cruise. We were surprised by a hurricane off New Caledonia, and we survived only because we did everything that had to be done. It was not as easy as it may sound. I have seen rougher seas since then, but have never experienced winds as violent as those. There is a saying that seamen are made by storms. I might add that storms also forge bonds among seamen. The events that followed that cruise back to France follow a logical, though not necessarily, obvious sequence. A year off to resume my studies, my arrival in Paris in May 1968, when the paving stones were flying and youngsters were determined to force liberty, equality and fraternity down the throats of everyone else, my decision to breathe once more the serene air of the sea, Eric's presence at Lorient preparing Panduic 4 for the transatlantic race in June, and the fact that he was short-handed at that moment. Then, everything began to happen fast. 
Panduic's collision in the channel and her subsequent dropping out of the race, the repair of the boat, the Atlantic crossing followed by the setting of a new record for the Trans-Pacific, Eric's decision to sell Panduic 4, my acquisition of it by borrowing the money, and finally, the return to France by completing an around-the-world cruise that gave me the experience necessary to win the 1972 Transatlantic. And now, the old Panduic 4, transformed into Manareva, the companion of my travels, was about to win new laurels in the wake of the great clipper ships of the 19th century. But I am counting my chickens before they hatch. There are still miles ahead of us, and it is never safe to anticipate, at sea, even less than on land. Monday, November 26th. Here, at least, the barometer can be relied on. A sun gust of 35 knots caused Manareva to jibe, but, since there is some good in everything bad, I took advantage of it to begin bearing towards Sydney, while taking a tally of the usual damage, broken battens in the mainsail, and the mizzen. The sea is rough, and a strong current is breaking Manareva's speed. That is, usual in these parts, it is the southerly set, a current that is the torment of participants in the Sydney Hobart race. I've been tied up on the radio with interviews, which began as soon as I raised Sydney. But, during the afternoon, I set the spinnaker, and from that time on, there was no time for anything but staying at the helm. It is only 150 miles to the heads, the promontories that form the Bay of Sydney, but the waves are unimpressed. One of them has thoroughly drenched the captain, and a halyard has broken. During the evening, I ran up the reaching jib after spending an hour trying to haul down the spinnaker, which was dragging, and then, after giving the matter some thought, I brought down the reaching jib and ran up the running jib, I should be about 25 miles from Jarvis Bay, which is about 85 miles from Sydney. I therefore have about 110 nautical miles to go, about 11 hours, if all goes well. Tuesday, November 27th. I am now on a course perpendicular to the coast after spending the night following in the wakes of freighters to such an extent that I had no need to take soundings. I did take a sounding this morning at 0900, 977 feet, after that, I remained in the cockpit. Then, things began to happen very quickly. There was occasional strong gusts of wind. The clouds were low in the sky and visibility was practically zero. It was raining steadily and even the palms of my hands were wet, though they have been glued to the helm for a long time. Then suddenly, I saw something dark and unmoving ahead. The sharp silhouette of the north head to starboard. We were only 15 miles away. It was precisely at 10.20 that Manareva and I, riding on the waves and covered with foam, passed the heads and entered the Bay of Sydney. I saw a small fleet of motorboats and sailboats rushing out of a small bay to port to greet me. Boats of every kind had been waiting for me, and when Manareva rose on the crest of a wave, I saw my family on one of them. By then, the boats had surrounded me, but I was going so fast that they had trouble keeping up. Nonetheless, we waved and shouted back and forth. In my mind I was going over my figures, so as I watched the familiar Australian shore, adding 561 miles to last week's total, I have a grand total of 14,640 nautical miles in 79 days. That is, 185 miles per day at an average speed of 7.7 .7 knots. It was a new solo record, but it was, above all, equal to the time of Cutty Sark a century earlier. I reached Sydney 
surrounded by friends and overwhelmed by the warmth of their affectionate welcome. I felt simultaneously the humility of the pilgrim returning to the sources of his faith and a great pride in having done what I set out to do. It would be difficult to overemphasize the contrast between my welcome in the Bay of Sydney and that on another coast one Friday in July 1972. On that day I crossed the finish line of the transatlantic sitting in my cockpit so tired that I could not budge, unable to handle the sails, tears of joy and fatigue running down my cheeks. The boat left to herself to do whatever she wanted to do. There was no one waiting for me that day. Oh, we're expecting a schooner this weekend, I was told by a fisherman I met at the entrance to the bay. I was astonished to see neither boat nor airplane, nothing that I had been led to expect by accounts that I had read. Finally, a single small airplane appeared in the distance and circled overhead twice before returning whence it had come. It was Lelouch, looking for his Vendredi 13, accompanied by his brother, who had just figured out that that strange white spot on the water below could only be me. The dark silhouette of land beyond my bow began to rise in the water as we went forward in the fog and the heat. Gradually, like a veiled red disc, the sun appeared and became the only witness to my victory before sinking slowly, gently, behind the hills of Newport. Later, of course, there was celebration. Boats hurrying to meet me, horns and whistles blowing, planes zooming overhead, reporters swarming to ask questions and demand explanations, laughter, shouts, all the things that serve as distractions and shorten that moment of overwhelming joy, that second of intense pleasure which, however ephemeral it may be, justifies and completes 20 days, 13 hours and 5 minutes of bitter struggle. This morning, in the Bay of Sydney, my parents and friends had waited in the cold and drizzle. Now, they formed a proud escort for my aluminum bird at the far end of another ocean. In Newport, the sun had had to show itself to compensate for the missing crowd. Here, the warmth of human hearts more than compensated for the coldness of the morning air. As soon as I entered Bass Strait, rounding the southern coast of Australia, I knew that I would not sleep again until I reached Sydney. Victory is won at the price of a final, all-out effort. At the same time, I began to feel a kind of exhilaration brought on by the anticipation of seeing my family and friends again in Sydney, and also by memories. Yes, memories of day after day of work and worry, of anxiety and solitude. And now, the sea had brought us to a safe port, to a haven of calm, security and peace. And so, escorted by friends, family and memories, I arrived. I tried to haul down the mainsail, and it stuck. Once more, I shinnied up the mast with my hammer, tapping here and tapping there, trying desperately to overcome the last obstacle that separated me from what I had dreamed about so many times. A boiling oh, That's the end of today's chapter. Shower. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner you can follow the link in the podcast description and there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable so at five dollars a month your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on keeps the wheels going around but if you are interested in developing your skills further then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there, for $20 a month, you get access to the 
one-hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty-gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.